The guest in this episode is a professor at Northern Vermont University whose students become instructors for programs like Outward Bound and Knowles, teachers in public and private schools, and climbing guides on the Earth's most exquisite terrain, such as Mount Kilimanjaro and the glaciated peaks of Alaska. My name is Phil. Welcome to Vertical Playpen, and I'm excited to bring you the conversation between myself and Brad Moskowitz. We're going to do a segment that I didn't tell you about um, that will no doubt be a fan favorite by the time this episode comes out because I've been doing this for a few, a few of the interviews. And it's called Mystery Questions. How long does this music go? <laughs> <laughs> so, the, so I will say, this is a bit of an internal joke just that I find entertaining, is that the level of drama of that music is so over the top for the actual questions. Uh, it doesn't match very well, but that okay. makes it makes me laugh. Um, so here, here's how Mystery Questions is going to work. I have 10 questions. I have 10 questions that I've written. You're just going to pick one of them, but they are a mystery to you. You don't know what they are. You're just going to pick number one through to 10. It's up to you which you pick. Whatever question you pick will be the question you answer, and then I will also answer it myself too. Mm. Question one to 10, your pick. I will take number eight. Tell me about a facilitation fail. Now it says, in brackets, something you're okay with people knowing. Ooh. There's no pass on this, is there? I mean, <laughs> I'm, I'm no, gra- there's a grading system. Well, you failed this interview, <laughs> and I hang up, not, and I hang up immediately. Were, not only am I about to disclose a facilitation fail, but I could fail this yeah. interview. My goodness, the pressure yeah. here. This is like high stakes. High stakes, and you picked the number. I will say there are some in there that were gimme questions, but you picked a uh, harder question. But a facilitation yeah. fail. Okay, I will. I'm going to fess up to some a pretty pretty significant um, faux pas, and that is I was working at a school not to be named in a state and not to be named. Well, I guess we can name it. I don't care. We were in Massachusetts. Uh, I was at a, working at a school system at the time. It was fairly early in my career, and one of the things we were doing is um, integrating students from several different schools into one high school. So we utilized a adventure education uh, model, actually referred to as the urban modification of Project Adventure, OOMPA, if you will. <laughs> wow. That was the acronym, yeah. OOMPA. Uh, and anyway... So I was working with another physical education colleague and we were in the gymnasium doing some activities um, and we were doing, we had done some trust fall type activities and we had moved on to the hickory jump. Maybe your listeners are familiar with that or a quick explanation. Yeah, sure. Throw an explanation. Yeah. yeah essentially there's um different levels of, of steps or platforms that one would stand on. Uh, there would be people zippered uh, like in a trust fall where the, the zipper is going to catch the person, but instead of them falling backwards, like in the traditional trust fall, 
they are leaping forwards, uh, trying to grab a trapeze. So it's like a low element version of an activity known as the pamper pole or the leap of faith, where they're trying to dive for a trapeze. And, you know, there's a very something that most all facilitators need to know before facilitating that activity is that whether or not the, the jumper actually grabs the trapeze or not, the spotters must catch them regardless. Uh, because sometimes what tends to happen is when somebody leaps forward after going through all the commands and having the people ready to spot, they leap forward, they reach, they grab the trapeze and they can, you know, if the, if the spotters let them go and don't catch them, they swing through and it's kind of fun. And then they put their feet on the ground and then everybody's hunky dory and keeps going. Well, Long story short, I think you know where this is going, Phil. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the students had uh, successfully caught the trapeze uh, a couple of times, and on another attempt, they jumped, and their hands hit the trapeze, and they did not fully grasp it. And uh, when, the, when they hit the group's hands, the group just let them drop completely straight on their torso, uh, on their face, right on the gym floor. There was a uh, tumbling mat. <laughs> we, we did have that going for yeah. us. But that was definitely a bit of a facilitation fail early on in my career. And one that you know took a, several more class meetings um, to work through with that student group in order to rebuild that trust mm-hmm. in each other and in the process and in the whole adventure education, why we were doing what we were doing. So it was, it was, it was a tough one. I I've made a similar mistake and I will, uh, I've shared, there, there are many, not many <laughs> every day. I make another one. I don't seem <laughs> wow. to learn, um, but there are a few that I professional. Yeah. There are a few that I've made. And one of them is very similar to what you were sharing. It was a, a wild woozy. The group wasn't ready to be there, but it was on my agenda. It was one of those, I hadn't really read the group. I wasn't paying attention as much as I wanted to. I was focused on what I need to get through and took them to a wild woozy and right at the very narrowest part where it's kind of tricky sometimes for people to stand up. And if there's going to be maybe a fort and white occur there and then it gets easier and then it's further on. But the spotters that I had at the tree at the base, uh, at the closest point, um, someone fell the spotters stepped out of the way. <laughs> they didn't do their job in the similar way. This one actually ended up with a person falling and breaking their wrist. So Ooh. it did end up in a little bit more. It was in slightly uneven ground. So there was an, a, a very immediate lesson there. And the lesson was that I, the agenda cannot ever trump the the readiness of the group. And so, and, I, and I've seen that in a lot of facilitation when I'm training, I've experienced this myself when I first started. There's a lot of pressure to try to do what you're expected of necessarily from someone else. Maybe it's the clients come in and they want to see everyone go through something, you know, and you're new in and you don't want to disappoint. If there's been a precedent in the previous years and everyone's gone on the swing and everyone's done this, blah, 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 then you feel as obligated to get it through as everyone else. This meets the any kind of studies there being Project Adventures twenty year data study on risk on a challenge course. The mm-hmm. incidents are more likely to occur in low elements and ground initiative activities than they ever are at the stuff at height. And so I've never had any incident really at height. 
I've had some instances of incidences on lows, and I've had some playing. Actually, the uh, one of the very few incident reports I've written whilst working at High Five was for Carabiner Tag. I don't know if you know that activity where you're people are wearing harnesses and you're holding carabiners and you're trying to hook them on the back loop of people's harnesses. So it's a <laughs> it's a tag game, and you're trying to yeah. get rid of your carabiners. It's an it's a fantastic activity to get people used to using the carabiners wearing harnesses. People underestimate the potential of incident in that area and think, well, I'm just doing lows. And it is interesting. I mean, I think that that's a point that I discuss with my students and I may have, we may have had a similar discussion before as well. And, you know, I think it's, uh, it's, it's a fine balance or a fine line. And uh, the example that I was giving um, is just the classic trust fall. And trust falls themselves have really gone out of fashion in the challenge course uh, realm. And, you know, understandably, they're high risk and there are issues and there have been issues in the past. You know, but as someone who, for me, I've, you know, I've been doing challenge course work since like 1993. It's a tough one because I feel like properly delivered and properly sequenced and with the right group at the right time in the right conditions. Um, you know, it's one of these activities that is potentially unmatched in terms of the potential for personal development, human growth and learning. I think that this, the, the growth of an industry that we've experienced there's, has made it so that, you know, I think you and I, both advocate strongly for training and the amount of training that is required and um, attention to detail in that training. I think that unfortunately those, those small cases where there's that understanding isn't there as with all things gets us to the point where we have to say goodbye to things that we may love because we know that unfortunately we know that they're not being used very well. That was mystery questions. Wow. Great. That, that was a great question. I'm glad we went through that one. Let's go into South Flowing back, and you mentioned you've been working in this field since 92. What was your introduction to adventure, adventure education in the first place? Okay, so uh, <laughs> let's see. I don't want to date myself too much here, but <laughs> yeah, when I was, when I was in, uh, I, <laughs> when I was a youngster, yeah. I went into a program, a summer camp that was fairly new at the time. And it was called Expeditions. And I think it was, uh, it, it then became Longacre Expeditions. And they're an outfit, I believe they're still operational. I know they were a few years ago. One of my students interned there. And it was a great program. And it was really, it was based on, like in this, in the woods and on a farm or something like that. And, but really we weren't there much time. We went on expeditions. So I did, I remember a, a bike touring expedition. We did rock climbing, you know, whitewater rafting, all that kind of stuff. And that was down in the Pennsylvania area. That was my, maybe my first uh, introduction to any kind of formal adventure education type of programming. Years passed. And when I went to university, um, went to college, I went out West. I really wanted to, to kind of move away from New England. And when I did, I, I chose to go to the University of Denver in Colorado. And I, I went there, I, I decided to go there sight unseen. I flew out there by myself uh, as a first year student. And I remember um, just seeing the Rocky Mountains kind of 
cresting over the horizon as I was flying west and uh, got to school in Denver and, and I immediately fell in love with the mountains. And that was kind of my inspiration. I got involved with the Alpine Club there. Uh, I led some trips mountain biking back before mountain biking was a thing and backpacking and that sort of stuff. So that was like my a little introduction as well. But the real, real thing was after I graduated college. I actually ended up, I changed my major several times as an undergraduate, but I actually ended up with a, with a business major in the construction industry, and I was doing some temporary work back. I had moved back to New England, and this was in 91. My temporary position was about to finish up, you know, and I was working doing statistical analysis or data entry for a construction firm. One of my good friends who I knew from childhood, who I went to college with in Denver, uh, he called me up and he said, hey, what are you doing in April? And I said, I don't know. I'm going to be in between jobs, I guess, looking for the next job. And he said, why don't you go work for my dad? He runs an outdoor education program in Maine. And it's called AOE, Arlington Outdoor Education. And his father, Ken Arnold, had been running this program for 20-something years where they take students from Arlington, Massachusetts, from every elementary school, and they bust them up five hours to a camp property in Maine and provided a week of outdoor education programming. And I said, well, I don't, I don't know. I've never done any of that work. And my friend Eric said, uh, come on, Brad, you know, you should do it. You'd be great. It would be super fun. People have a blast. And I said, well, you know, the only thing I know about sixth graders is that most of them are shorter than me, I think, <laughs> right? Yeah. Phil, you know, I'm, in terms of a guy, I'm on the shorter side. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> that was a bit of a joke. Yeah. And, and he said, oh, don't worry, you'd be great. I said, okay, well, what's it pay? And he said, 50 bucks a week. I said, you got to be kidding me. He said, it's a short-term thing. It's like six weeks, six different schools come each week. Mm -hmm. So I did it. I went up there and it changed my life. We had kids that came from Arlington and Arlington's at the time, especially, was a pretty socioeconomically diverse town. And a lot of the kids there had never seen a tree bigger than the one that grows out of the sidewalk. And here we were in central Maine on a beautiful little lake. And we would take these students and just, you know, do outdoor experiential education with them. And we didn't have a ropes course per se, but we did a lot of uh, challenge-based activities. And one of the big activities we did was the swamp walk. <laughs> and we would we'd have the students, you know, um, wear their, their junky clothes and pull their socks up over their pants and would walk through a swamp. And at times it was like neck deep. Uh, we had to, you know, keep kids from going under. And it was just an incredible adventurous experience. And the students on Friday would walk away from that or get back on the bus crying and not wanting to leave. And the, the big part of it was having them recognize that learning could be fun. And that was really what changed my professional direction and introduced me to the field of adventure education. What about that experience drew you in so much? Is there a way you could describe like what what is the draw? What is the importance of the field that we're in? Having an impact on one's life or perspective. Potentially changing paradigms. Having somebody 
recognize the potential that is within them that they did that they may not have found without you. Um, I think that that is the most important part of our work. It's ha- it's about discovery, you know, and it's about it's about certainly discovery, learning about the, our natural world and the natural system that we're a part of, and you know, having attitudinal growth and development about nature and why it's important and how our actions may or may not impact the natural world. I think that's critically important. But really, it's about self-discovery. It's about finding the true core value of who we are as individuals, how we are both um, a part of a system and that being here means something. And it's kind of the beauty and the value of life. It's an incredible gift that we have. At times, it's incredibly challenging for us to live. Everybody experiences hardship and difficulty and loss. Yet, being alive and experiencing life is just incredible. And so we need to savor every moment. How did you end up teaching? In, so you did it as, as an experience, right, in Maine. But what's the transition between going from there to being able to, like, find a career, full-time career, teaching this? Mm, yeah. Oh, well, that's a great question. Uh, so, yeah, I was, uh, I, was, I was technically an educator there, right, at that program. And then that very next summer, I started working. Um, my same friend, actually, was working at Beaver Country Day School, which is a private school uh, outside of Boston in Chestnut Hill. They had an adventure program where they had a two-week adventure camp, and we would take kids. We would spend a day or two, kind of day camping with day, you know, day programming with them. Uh, they had a ropes course there. I was trained on using that ropes course, and we took them rock climbing, and then we took them in a van, and we went up to Vermont and New Hampshire and Maine, and you know, backpacked and rock climbed and bike and white did some whitewater rafting. So. I started working in that program and gaining some experience there. And and then the following season, I I worked at another kind of environmental education program called Stone Environmental School. And they had several locations. I worked both in Ferry Beach, Maine, and also in uh, Groton, Massachusetts. And then I took over the directorship of the summer camp program. So I was doing these seasonal jobs in outdoor experiential education and adventure education for a couple of years. I was deciding, do I want to go back to school? Do I want to be a doctor? Do I want to be a a teacher, a licensed teacher? And so I started taking some classes um, through Harvard's external program. And I got a year-long contract as a physical education and health teacher at a school in that area, not to be named because mm-hmm. it might relate to the story I've already told. <laughs> um, yeah. So I was working as a health and PE teacher on a one-year contract where I was essentially hired because I had all this ropes course and adventure experience and they were doing the OOMPA, mm-hmm. Urban Modification of Project Adventure program there. Yeah, so I did that for a year and I ran the summer camp again And then I ended up um, applying for and getting a job at a community college in northwestern New Mexico. And I got a job running their outdoor education program. 
And so they had a, a big recreational community-based program there, and I took that over and helped to further develop that. In that process, while I was there, I got my master's degree, and I created an academic degree program in outdoor, what do we call it? Outdoor leadership, education, and recreation. And so I taught a few classes, I hired faculty, I administered the whole program, and I was out there for about five years in the Four Corners region. My, I got married uh, to my long-standing girlfriend, Gail, and we were loving life out there in the desert southwest, but um, we knew we wanted to start a family, and I was looking for other opportunities, and this job at uh, Northern, well, Johnson State College at the time came up here in Vermont. And I realized if I was going to move Northeast, Vermont was the number one state I wanted to live in. Mm -hmm. And it all worked out. And so unbelievably so, I've actually been with this institution in this job for 21 years. It's been incredible. And in terms of like our connection, my connection to you, High Five's connection to you, uh, you bring us up to do uh, level one certification, ACCT mm -hmm. certification for your students. What advice do you give your students as they're coming, they're in in your class, and they're wanting to find careers in this industry? What advice do you give them? Some of the advice is to be open. Don't focus yourself too narrowly. While our field is continuing to become more professional and is requiring people to choose more specific paths, so they have depth in a particular skill set or area, you also need to be open and willing to try just about anything because you never know what doors is going to open for you. And, you know, that's really what happened with me. Just kind of these, I, I didn't anticipate being in this field at all. And I've followed a path and it's been a great one. I think sometimes there's a hesitancy to want to jump into the seasonal stuff. When you equate the money, the numbers and the money and the hours and the, all that time, right? I think that sometimes can be a hard sell to someone who's doing a degree and just, just spent four years and X amount of money. What's the, what's the discussion like, like for you when, in order to try to reinforce that that is the route that people should be taking? Well, I mean, it really depends. It really depends on where they're coming from and, you know, their mm. financial situation and how much money they're indebted to their yeah. college loans. I mean, it is, it's tricky. Yeah. And I, you know, I try to be upfront with people and, and say that, it could be challenging to live a lifestyle that's somewhat nomadic and, you know, living out of the back of your Toyota Tacoma pickup truck and driving around to different jobs all over the country. That could be challenging, especially if you've accrued a lot of debt. I think I tell them that they, they have to be realistic and they have to assess their financial situation and make choices. But, you know, some parts of the field pay more than others. And some jobs, you know, may not be as desirable, but might pay a little bit more. Um, maybe they need to expand their horizons or find seasonal jobs that can, you know, if they're working a great summer program, but maybe during the year they're doing work that isn't as glamorous or vice versa. You know, I have students who ski guide and, you know, they don't make a ton of money ski guiding. Uh, but they have it's an incredible experience for them. They're doing what they love and they're providing other people with these incredible life, sometimes life-changing experiences of being in the mountains. 
And then on the shoulder seasons or in the summer, they might be doing, you know, they might have their own lawn care company. They might be, you know, banging nails at a construction site or they might be working, you know, therapeutic programs um, on the shoulder seasons and just kind of trying to make it work. And those that are successful, you know, and some, I had one former student who went you know, down to Chile every summer and he, he got it down there and he you know, financially was, was able to make it work mm-hmm. um, for a few years until he got more of a career type job running a program at a school. Do you think that the industry needs to do more to be able to provide opportunities for students? I, I, I personally worry about the open constant new influx of se- very seasonal jobs, but there's not much a longevity to them. Like I worked outdoor ed and I really enjoyed the process, but that, career was not set up for me to be there forever mm-hmm. and maybe there's benefits to it maybe there's not but what's your perspective on the industry as a whole right like we are we are in these unique positions that we have these careers that mm-hmm. pay what they pay and you get what you get like those kind of stuff and we are more career focused and there are small amounts of them but I don't know. I struggle with it because I feel bad for the students that come to us sometimes and ask for stuff. And the advice I can give is the same. The advice you've got to be open. You've got to be know that it's you don't get in this industry for the money, which I do not like that phrasing. But what's your thoughts? I think that we there needs to be a change in the societal perspective on the value of what we do, especially in the when we use the term education. So adventure education, outdoor education, experiential education, whatever. And also the recreation piece, uh, you know, outdoor recreation, adventure recreation, experiential recreation. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> so I think that there needs to be a fundamental shift, which is so we need to pay. We need to pay more. We need to pay our employees more. We need to charge more for our services. Yet at the same time, we need to find more alternative funding opportunities so that we can serve everybody and not just make this our experiences that we provide and the services that we provide for only the people that can afford it. So that's the catch 22. But it's it's also a societal thing. And honestly, it, it kind of is woven into the fabric of our country, of the United States, of being a country based on the premise of independence. Just using, you know, I play, I, I wear many hats. And so using the perspective of, guiding, you know, people that get paid to guide. Now, fishing guides do pretty darn well, actually, in this country. But, you know, climbing guides, uh, rafting guides, what have you, um, mountain bike guides, ski guides, the the money people are earning in this country is about 50% on, on a daily rate as to what they earn in Europe, okay? And the culture in Europe around guiding, mountain guiding, has, it's a long-standing tradition that people, you know, will pay somebody and respect the, the, that person's credentials and skill sets to take them into dangerous places, get them up to the top of the mountain and back down safely. In the United States, we don't quite have that same type of culture. We have the I want to climb the mountain. I'm going to learn how to do it on my own and I'm going to do it on my own. And, you know, I mean, part of me loves that, right? I've been gallivanting in the mountains for many, many years and uh, I love doing it and I love doing it alone and, and with people and sharing it with people. But we need to somehow think about a fundamental paradigm shift 
um, for the general population, because I, you know, if I tell you, if I go to a AEE or an AOR conference and start saying, you know, people need to value what we do more, everyone's going to say, yeah, you're preaching to the choir. Mm-hmm. But I think we need to, you know, continue to to shift the more general population to understand the value of adventure experiences and that they need to that it needs to be paid for somehow. And, you know, even, even the, you know, even the rock climbing and the mountain guiding and all this stuff is, you know, we're trying to help people gain a more astute sense of who they are as individuals and how, you know, they impact and influence the communities and the people that they interact with. Uh, It's incredibly important work. It really is. And I think there's going to be a, a continued demand if people recognize the value and see how it changes. So where does it need to go? Interestingly enough, I'm, I think that there's some pretty good evidence that research will only continue to help the profession and help the public understand the value of the work that we do and help, you know, kind of elevate the opportunity that would exist for people to, to have, you know, maybe not lucrative is the right word, but uh, stable, successful careers and lifestyles uh, doing adventure type of work. And I think that I'm not a researcher at this time. You know, that's not kind of my, my bailiwick, even though I am technically a college professor. But that doesn't mean that I don't fully believe and support people who are doing quality research to accurately depict the value of the work we do. I think that we need to keep playing games and we need to keep using rubber noodles and oh, chickens yeah. and, or, okay, the, the rubber chickens and the rubber noodles. noodles. But yeah. anyway, yeah. whatever material uh-huh. you use, whatever tools mm-hmm. are in your toolbox, I think it's important that we still utilize that and keep the fun factor high. But what we really need to be better at is the follow through. Why did we just raft that river? Why did we climb that mountain? Why did we spend five days in the rain, you know, hiking? And how does that help us learn more about whatever, ourselves, how we interact as a small community, how we respect and value each other, how we respect and value the environment, and more so. So, you know, that follow-up has always been one of the thorns in adventure education sides. And that's just something to to continue to think about how we can improve. Yeah. Awesome. Well, yes. that's, yeah, that's a wonderful note to end. So uh, how might anyone, if they're listening and interested in the work that you do, how might they find information? Is there a website? Is there an email they can reach out to you at? Yeah, absolutely. So Northern Vermont University, you just put that into any search engine, including one called Google, mm. and you could probably find uh, NVU, Northern Vermont University. And there's, uh, if you look at uh, academic programs in the outdoor section, you'll find um, our major and all the information about that. Uh, my email is brad.moskowitz. It's a tough one to spell. I'll put it in the M-O-A. description. <laughs> yeah, put it in the description. <laughs> at northernvermontallwrittenout.edu. I try to keep up with my email as best I can. And uh, I'm always, you know, I'm always interested to speak with people, whether it's people who are active professionals in the field, potential students, of course, and uh, just anyone who's trying to figure out their career path and how to get where they want to go and what they might do as it relates to outdoor adventure and experiential education. 
Thank you so much, yeah. uh, Brad, for taking the time. Thank you, Phil. And uh, it's great to, to talk with you as always. And I hope that uh, we get to see you this spring. Thanks for listening to Vertical Playcast. And then what about thanks for listening to High Fives Podcast? Can you do it? Okay, try. Thanks for giving us a good guy. <laughs> <laughs>